0: Welcome to another episode of Total Rankers. This is a podcast where myself Donal and my good friend Toby, we uh, we talk about music and ranking. That's pretty much it. That's what we do. Toby, how are you?
1: I'm very well. Thank you very much. I was pretty stoked by our um, debut performance last week. I think it it soared to at least a six, and uh, yeah, I'm excited that there's more to come.
0: And are you coping well with isolation and lockdown or are you losing your mind?
1: Um, completely losing my mind. Um, earlier on this morning, I insisted that my family go for a walk and it's about minus four today. And it was so cold that by halfway through the walk, I'd actually lost the feeling in both of my hands. And, and yet... That was clearly the, the right and important thing to do on a day like today.
0: I, I thought you meant that you sent your family out on a walk while you stayed at home. And I thought, God, that's a good idea.
1: That would have been, that would have been as, as Derek Smalls once said, there's such a fine line between clever and stupid.
0: <laughs> well, look, as you mentioned, la- last week's podcast was about debuts and it was our debut. Let's hope that resonance isn't quite so profound this time around, because today we're going to talk about flops. But not just any flop. We're going to talk about quality flops. Toby, can you explain to me what you think is a quality flop?
1: Well, I think the interesting thing is that before you suggested this, it hadn't actually occurred to me that such a thing really existed. When I first thought about it, I thought about it in the context of of the cinema. Because, you know, there are quite a few movies in the, the history of the cinema which completely flopped. And yet, looking back, are seen as masterpieces. But I'd never really thought about that in terms of albums and I suspect that's mainly because when I listen to them unless I really know the artist in an in-depth way I'm just listening to them and think this is good or this is bad I'm not necessarily seeing it in its context what was interesting about this for me is unlike last week where as we discussed yes we were talking about debut albums but basically we were talking about albums we really liked that happens to be debut albums this week I think we can't divorce the album from its historical context
0: and its reception i suppose the reception that it gets
1: absolutely because what makes a flop a flop was one of the interesting questions and i suppose that it could be because the artists themselves disavow it and say no this is a bag of shite or whatever and certainly with one of mine um one of the protagonists almost said that word for word (laughs) but actually you've got to look at things like sales and reception. And I think you've also got to look at it in the context of the arc of that artist's career. Because if your first album sells 23 copies, well, that's not a flop. And if your second album then sells 24 copies, potentially that's a hit. <laughs> that's progression. I thought it was a really yeah. interesting idea, really challenging. The first time I thought of it, when, when you suggested it, I thought it through and I thought I have no idea what I'm going to do. And I ended up with a list that was too long, which I had to cut down. There are a lot more quality flops out there than I originally thought.
0: I was also reflecting on it, and I kind of thought expectation is probably the key concept for me. you know if If the artist thinks they're about to change the whole history of music you know and don't, that's perfect, or record companies with fans with great expectations, it seems to me that's one of the key things. and if it's career derailing, then it's a flop, no matter what I suppose. Right. How much it sales or, or anything. So it's like a, there's a, f- a set of characteristics of a, a flop that maybe not all flops share, more like family characteristics, as it were, the flop family. And maybe we'll think uh, at, at the end about what, what we've learned about what makes a quality flop. Toby, I'm going to send you first with the fifth most quality flop of all time, in your opinion.
1: Well, this one is a sad story. It's a sad oh, story of Liverpool folk in the 1980s.
0: <laughs> oh, dear. My it's flop sad, number ready. five
1: is liverpool by frankie goes to hollywood that's sad now you and i were about 14 years old i think when relax hit the airwaves and i wasn't very interested in it i wasn't really interested at that point in any song that was less than 18 minutes long um and you weren't i think interested in any song that that had emerged post 1970
0: (laughs) that's pretty much true
1: and so, it, you know, yes, fine, fine. Two Tribes, yes, fine. And it, I got mildly irritated when there was that thing about, oh, this is the first band that's done three number ones since Jerry and the Pacemakers, because, of course, that somehow suggested they were better than the Beatles. And I better than I,
0: Jerry and the Pacemakers.
1: <laughs> I didn't really have much of an emotional connection with Jerry and the Pacemakers, <laughs> um, but I did with the Beatles. And I, I, I remember almost coming to blows with somebody in our class at school over how good he thought Frankie Goes to Hollywood was. So for reasons that actually I don't quite recall now, but maybe just because everyone did, I actually bought the album Welcome to the Pleasure Dome. And having bought it and listened to it, I was affirmed that it is an absolute part of Pants.
0: It was. I think I borrowed it from you. It's quite uh, possible. and Because I didn't want to buy it either. <laughs> I was a bit like, unsure. And yeah, I thought it was terrible.
1: Other than those two songs, there's, almost, there's actually nothing there. He's like, where's, where, where's the music? What is going on? <laughs> I've got my copy here. Wow. And Because and, I, I sort of looked into it. And it is extraordinary. One of the inner sleeves is actually a merchandising order form, which I think must have been a piss take, <laughs> but it, it's there. And in the middle, in, in the middle of the gatefold, it's, there's a quote. It says, I get buzzed off the fact that Andy Warhol's heard of us because he gets buzzed off the fact that Picasso has heard of him. <laughs>
0: two degrees of separation yeah
1: there was a suggestion of some kind of artistic lineage but picasso Andy, frankie and of course and of course there were there were all the t-shirts and the, the tote bags and all that and they were obviously having a really good time so when i look back on it now i think actually it is a terrible album but fair dues they were clearly having a really good time then they released Liverpool as their second album. And again, my recollection looking back is that it was very, very hotly anticipated. It was like Frankie are going to smash it again. You know, there's going to, nobody else is going to bother recording music for or releasing music for about the next six months, because it's going to be Frankie, Frankie, Frankie. They released a the first single called rage hard, which got yep. to about number four. And then the album came out and then there was just silence. And that was the end of Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Now, I have listened to the album, and the thing is, it's pretty good. But why I think it's actually a really sad story is that it's an album of music. All the nonsense from the first album, all the talking and the the sort of mucking around, that's all gone. This is actually a rock album, a poppy rock album. But it's very much in that genre of mid-80s, kind of stadium-ish Simple minds, you
0: two. Yeah, simple minds all over it. It's amazing.
1: Simple minds all over it. And I think this is them saying, okay, we've done all that farting around. We've had a laugh with you. We're actually musicians, guys. We can actually make music. And oh, his... dear.
0: That never ends well, does it?
1: And everyone just said, no, nah, you're all right, mate.
0: <laughs> don't do that.
1: And the thing is that it's good. I think it's perfectly good. Um, I, the first I song. Don't warriors of the wasteland it's better than anything on welcome to the pleasure dome and they're a group of perfectly good songs and i think it was if it had been the other way around if this had been their first album they'd have maybe got a following that would have allowed them to have a career when people said yeah all right this is quite good as you say in the same vein as simple minds we'll go along and watch this and jump up and down a bit in the audience that'll be fine and you can imagine they would have a career of releasing like simple minds did basically the same album again and again in a different package yeah as it was, because this was not welcome to the Pleasure Dome, too. That was it. Goodbye, Frankie.
0: And it's it's funny, isn't it? Because uh, apparently, there's a story that the reason it got ended up being called Liverpool, which the band didn't want, was because that's where the owner of the record company thought they'd be after it came out, because he thought <laughs> he thought it was going to be a flop, which is a bit mean. Um, I I was surprised at its quality. I thought it was going to be terrible. I had a, always had a bit of a, a, a soft spot for Rage Hard, even Warriors of the Wasteland. I, I remember that the singles. I did end up feeling it didn't quite have the tunes. I I just thought their their band are playing well, you know. They've got the, the lyrics are kind of whatever. They're political. They're interesting. The the band are playing well. I just thought it just didn't quite have the tunes. But the band were were, were good. Yeah, and the production is is eighties but impressive. Yeah. I don't quite understand why it was the end for them. I know there was some awful massive lawsuit, which is, of course, a good sign, though, of a quality flop. It is.
1: It, it's not. It's not brilliant. Musically, it has obviously, for me, a much greater quality than their first album. Yeah. And yet that was it. It just was it. That was it. That, that was, was, it. It. That was the end.
0: But it, it does have that awful quality of that. They want to be taken seriously. And that's yeah. just you just like, exactly. oh, don't, please. No, stop. And the but, fact is that nobody wanted to. Yeah, well, nope. look at them, the natives Frankie goes to Hollywood. I mean, how can you take them seriously? It's not the point, but uh, hey-ho, quality flop. Definitely a good choice for quality flop there. Shall, shall, I, shall I embark yes, on my Yes, what's your my quality version? flop
1: number five?
0: Okay, I, I, for me, I've chosen an album I'm very fond of. May, may be surprised to know it could even be considered a quality flop, but it is the kinks. The album is the Village Green Preservation Society. Um, Now, why is that a flop? You might say it's possibly their most famous album. Well, it didn't even chart. It sold so badly, it didn't even make it onto the top 100. I think it was released the same day as something like the White Album or something like that. Very out of place sort of album. I love the music. It's very sort of warm. It's it's a bit like a sort of cup of tea, as a record goes, with sort of acoustic guitars and pianos. The whole album cover actually is a kind of colour of tannin. So maybe there was a tea motif throughout you know you can say it's about whatever you want loss of innocence or fear of change but one thing it definitely is about is people in muswell hill a, a lot of the characters johnny thunder was a sort of aging rocker they've changed the changed the names obviously to protect to protect the innocent but daisy walter these are all characters from ray and dave davis's boyhood in muswell hill which of course an area you and i probably know reasonably well growing up around the corner
1: wasn't it and there used to be sort of sightings of ray davis from time to time when we were kids.
0: Yeah, I've, I've cited him. His mum lives in Highgate Village. Hey, I'm hey. gutted because there's a pub that, where they started and there's a Kinks tribute band that play there and every now and then Ray Davis turns up and heckles. And friends of mine invited me I couldn't go. And he was there and they said it was a great night. They were just shouting at them and saying, that song's rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> I like the mythology of the Kinks and he's apparently a really grumpy sod which is, you know, nothing wrong with that.
1: I think this is a, perfectly good album i think it's really nice it's really listenable but i suppose maybe one of the ways it connects with liverpool is that there aren't any obvious hits and most particularly there aren't any obvious hits in the vein of you really got me all day and all of the night and tired of waiting so there's this kind of gap between expectation and delivery and that really difficult i think this was a one of those situations where a band is saying actually we'd like to do something different please folks and then people say mm,
0: maybe, maybe, maybe not, not. Yeah. yeah i mean it's got a few qualities like it, he wants to make it a double album which i think is a great beginning of a flop surely he's already a bit disappointed this the single was a very poor choice they chose i think starstruck which is actually oddly one of the weakest songs yeah um you can't help thinking they chose in the village green preservation of yeah. the single it might have might have worked Yeah, just it disappeared. It did derail their career to some extent. I mean, uh, their basis left shortly afterwards. They started doing a bit of cabaret clubs in the sort of northern club circuit. So things got a bit rocky at one point.
1: I I like the fact that it's actually called The Kinks Are the Village Green Preservation (laughs) Society. A little bit pompous. And and that's nothing wrong with that. It was, uh, you know, 1968 was the time to start doing that. Uh, even if you would like you to at least, if not artistically, then commercially, fall a little bit on your face.
0: It's kind of sad. And in, in the small print at the end, it sort of says, you know, we are the king, says, you are our friends for playing the record. It's rather sad oh. because I we didn't have very <laughs> many friends.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh dear.
0: But uh, yeah, it's a, like a quality flop, Toby. Take, take us deeper in the world of quality flops.
1: My quality, not flop number four is my prog-ish album for the week, which is Us by
0: Peter Gabriel.
1: Now, Peter Gabriel, what a man. This isn't the place for a lengthy diatribe or discourse.
0: <laughs> Listen, where else? Where, you tell me someplace it is. Because essentially. That's the answer you're going to get, but okay, I, I so respect your decision. In
1: a nutshell, a man who's never really got over himself. <laughs> a, a man who, I, I mean, and I say this as a great aficionado. You just always have this feeling when you say... You know, he wants to be a great artist with a capital G and a capital A. And actually, he's best when he just gets on with it. You know, as one knows, a few albums in the early 70s with Genesis, you know, dancing around with a flower pot on his head and all of that. And that's fine. There was Dressing as a Penis as part of The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway and a lot of other things. Left There did four really, really interesting, very, very different solo albums between 1977 and 1983. And he really seemed to have understood how to do this because he avoided the dinosaur logo. He was embraced by the new wave. He would do, you know, gigs with the stranglers. He was he was pretty cool at the right. point where most people who danced around with flower pots on their heads was <laughs> were distinctly passe. <laughs> Um, And then this extraordinary (laughs) thing happened that he made this album called So, which on the back of uh, Sledgehammer became a worldwide hit. And Peter Gabriel, strange, kind of slightly gauche, arty, great artist, became a kind of megastar. And he got a movie star girlfriend.
0: He started to look very much like Robert Palmer. I think He did.
1: And one of the things that happened is that even even in his solo tours, he'd always dressed up a bit. So there'd been some makeup or he'd done his hair a particularly weird way. There was one tour when the entire band shaved their heads because Tony Levin, the bass player, had a shaved head. So they all shaved their heads. And he I read some interview where he discussed how the music just felt really different because they all had shaved heads.
0: (laughs) I mean, absolutely. Complete bollocks. Suggest that you shave your head to listen to it. I don't know if
1: that's... (laughs) It made it more intense and meaningful. I mean, complete bollocks, but in a way that a capital G great capital A artist would have to think. And then suddenly he started dressing in rather suave and debonair black on stage, and all the makeup had gone. And it was like, okay, you're kind of embracing and Peter. And I'm sure his bank balance soared because he'd basically been almost bankrupt in the 1980s. Mega album, mega single. And then uh, in normal Peter fashion, he then goes away and it takes him far too long to come up with the next one. There were six years between So and Us.
0: And building for a flop, isn't it? You're getting everyone ready. He
1: clearly didn't know what to do. He didn't know what to do to follow so did he become more poppy did he become more funky what did he do so he brought out us a double album and it it wasn't a flop with a capital f in the sense that it did some business people bought this album but there were no hit singles. there was one song which was clearly a sledgehammer part two called steam which is
0: it really was son of sledge wasn't it
1: yeah and it isn't very good and it was released as a single and it didn't do particularly well So that was the end of Us. And that was really the end of Peter's megastar phase. And then (laughs) it then took 10 years for the album after that. That was absolute pants. And that was the end of him doing anything.
0: I I read an interview with him when that album came out. and He just said, I just can't, I can't see why it took so long. I I feel I've been very busy. I just don't know what I've been doing. 10 years.
1: (laughs) The album itself is, I think, Certainly a lot better than so. I think it's, it stands up with any of his previous work. But why its quality, I think, is this. The album has a lot of influences of uh, particularly African music and Indian music. The album was released on his own label called Real World, which he had started in order to promote world music. The reason why he nearly went bankrupt in 1982 is because he had totally financed uh, the WOMAD Festival, the World Organization of Music and Dance, who did world music festivals each summer, which, you know, obviously were attended by four people knitting their own yogurts. But he was so committed to it that he did it. And if you look at the inner sleeves are a whole load of reproductions of art from the developing world and there is a a catalogue listing for the real world catalogue setting out all the albums you can buy from all these artists from developing nations
0: he was hollywood with the merchandise form
1: (laughs) that's the difference exactly what what what, but, but what a difference and so in a sense during the course of those six years he maintained his commitment to exposing people to world music. And that, that was how he decided he wanted to use his stardom. Didn't really work, but I think 100% for trying. Okay. As a, uh, and, and so for that reason, I think quality bloke, quality flop.
0: I, I'd never listened to it before, uh, and I enjoyed it. It started with bagpipes, which I thought I, I yep. immediately warmed to it. I was like, this is, this is good. Then, yeah, very dense rhythms. I'm not sure it's necessarily my bag, all that, the, the density and the layers of the rhythm, but I sort of really appreciated it. I thought this is quality, definitely quality. I, I, I'm, with, I'm with you on that one.
1: Very good. So what's your number four quality flop? Okay,
0: I'm going to take us down to Watertown. Uh-huh. This is an album by Frank Sinatra. Watertown is a flop because it's his lowest selling album. And he's released a lot of albums. But this is the lowest selling of them all. He apparently never played the songs live. Just sort of disowned it, really. And it's a shame. It's my favourite album of his. I think that's because a couple of reasons. The first is the way it was recorded. He always recorded live with an orchestra. And that's how you get the sort of shabba assigning swing thing. This album, although he had been in the studio the the orchestra recorded first and then he was sent the tapes and that was in new york and then he was in la sitting there in the studio alone with his with his rothmans and he recorded the vocals so there's none of that swing so it's it's beat music and and i prefer beat music to swing so i think it's got that element to it also it was a, a concept album a, a rather loosely defined concept of of some guy whose wife has either died or left him you can't quite work it out and Frank Sinatra is, is, is an actor. I mean, in all his songs, he, he was famous for taking the lyrics home and really trying to get into the story. And then he comes and it's like his story. But Frank Sinatra is himself a sort of character. It's a bit like Sean Connery. You know, it's, like, it's, not really, it's acting, but you're, you're just being sort of some version of yourself. And, and uh, that's what he did. Whereas in this version...
1: <laughs> I'm not sure Sean Connery ever made it that far. <laughs>
0: have, speak, have you heard Sean Connery's version of In My Life?
1: No, but I'm oh listening it right like, now.
0: There are places I remember, but some have changed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, So Frank Sinatra normally is playing some kind of cool guy who's a, who's a bit furrowed brow. Here, he's actually acting. He really is playing a loser, and maybe the fans didn't like it. Maybe he didn't like it. I don't know. And anyway, I, it didn't do very well, but I I love it.
1: I know nothing at all about Frank Sinatra apart from his, you know, every so often rather poor movie roles. And obviously Singing My Way, which was, you know, better in translation by Sid Vicious. But I was I was amazed by this because when you when you sent this through, I thought, oh, blimey, I have to listen to a Frank Sinatra record. And I assumed it would be him crooning, finger popping, being a cool dude, possibly wearing a hat and would really (laughs) irritate me. Uh, Like that entire genre. I can't. I've never really understood it. Never really understood any of it. But this is really weird. It's so it's so dark yeah i mean there's no finger popping it reminded me of kind of the pogues at their most slow and depressed really really dense music and there is no light and dark it's just dark and when i looked into it and i found this is a concept album i think i think the thing i read suggested that it was about a guy whose wife has left him what a thing to do a whole album about that it's absolutely extraordinary And he must have really wanted to do something very different. And in a similar way to a lot of the narrative that we're hearing, generally people said, no, thanks, Frank. We'd rather you didn't. Um, And it was produced by um, one of the Four Seasons, Bob Gaudio.
0: I didn't know that because I know it was written by a guy who just before this album, he'd written a concept album for the Four Seasons, which I really hope we can find time to talk about. (laughs) some some ranking of some kind because it's it's quite something too is is the album
1: you're talking about genuine imitation life gazette
0: that is it that is it, it. is
1: downstairs on my shelf <laughs> <We're>... <laughs> and yeah. it, it, there's a little bit of a layer of dust on the top <laughs> but I, I will i will go and blow it off at some point and we can talk about genuine imitation love life gazette because I, I, I think but this i thought Thank you for letting me know that it existed, because I will, I will listen to it again when I'm psychologically strong enough to do so.
0: There we go. What's down? Quality flop.
1: A quality we, flop. What's next? My number three quality flop is Homebrew by Naina Cherry. Naina Cherry is, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. It's quite difficult to be okay. a huge fan of Naina because she doesn't actually produce very much music, which is kind of irritating. But the music that she does is really high quality. And most people will know Naina Cherry for mainly one thing, which is Buffalo Stance, which was side one, track one of her first album, big hit. And I remember listening to it back in um, 1989, I think it was. And it was, it, w- it was the right time for me. It was just the point where I was getting more interested in, in, in funk and hip hop. And I thought it was fantastic. I listened to the album. Uh, I thought it was fantastic. And I thought, yeah, great, I'm going to be a Nana Cherry fan. Very much looking forward to more from Nana. Homebrew came out three years later, and it was pretty much a flop. I mean, from that point, again, in a similar way, I think, to what one would say about the, the, the Peter Gabriel album, generally people don't know the songs from Homebrew, and it didn't really chart, and the singles didn't chart. But it's fantastic, because what it does is it she just stretches out And she she has produced what is, I mean, let's be honest, Raw Like Sushi is basically a pop record. And then she produces her record. And it's deeper. It's funkier. It's rockier. It hits that kind of feel between funk and rock a couple of times really well. There's a you know, there's a song which samples John Bonham's drumming from When the Levee Breaks. And that's, you know, you're 99 percent there with me already.
0: Is it the duet with Michael Stipe? Oh, yeah. that's, that's fantastic. It's a fantastic. great
1: tune, but it wasn't what people wanted from her. So essentially, it flopped. And, you know, since that time, she's produced two albums and contributed on another um, over the best part of
0: 30 years. Wow. But homebrew is something to aim for. It really does. The lyrics were interesting. They were sort of moving between sort of sounded a bit like a domestic argument of some kind with some guy who, who obviously really annoyed her. Uh, very political statements. Uh, it you know, just kind of moved around a lot in a way that I sometimes found a little bit difficult to to identify with. Felt very personal all the way through.
1: Even the see, even the um the title, homebrew. You know, this is her. It's a very personal thing. It is that oh, thing of that, this is my, this is this is the music I want to make. And a little bit sad.
0: Yeah, but... I just associate homebrew with my Uncle John and this really sort of undrinkable beer that he makes. Maybe this was the undrinkable album. That... Maybe.
1: The trouble is, I don't I don't think that's what Naina was aiming for, but I think it might be, unfortunately, what she achieved.
0: <laughs> Isn't that always the story of homebrew, I suppose? So... <laughs> I think it probably is. <laughs> it's a gap. It's that gap. Oh, dear. I hope she was pleased with it, because it was a good record. Good record. I've read some interviews with her. She seemed chipper enough and philosophical enough about the whole thing.
1: Yeah, um, no, I, I think I think she was. Um I don't think she ever knew that um during that late 80s, early nineties period I had quite a serious crush on her. I think maybe that would have made a difference. Um and most particularly I remember that in about nineteen ninety-one my friend nigel who worked in a bookshop in cricklewood told me that nana had come into the shop um, because mm-hmm. that was where that was where she was living at the time and i was really really jealous i i did speculate as to whether i should go and get a job in the shop
0: <laughs> or just any in any shop in cricklewood
1: yeah just on the off chance
0: but <laughs> thank you toby For introducing me to that record I, I will listen to that one again i enjoyed it it was good good I shall tell you my version, my version of the third most quality flop of all time is an album by a band called Talk Talk, another 80s band, and this album called Spirit of Eden. It's, I think, a flop because it's charted at number 19, which isn't absolutely terrible, but uh, I think the previous album sold 4 million and and this one certainly didn't. The uh, record company executive when when the album was played apparently burst into tears and not because he was moved. (laughs) <laughs> by the emotional statements they were making. And they never toured again. And I think it was definitely a flop. I like it because I think it's a very uh ambitious record. They used to record sort of a saxophonist for like all day and then use like three seconds for the album. They spent months and months fiddling about with tiny, tiny bits of music and sound. It's actually, I think, a, a pop album at heart. The there's hooks. The, the songs always have a, have a very conventional structure, but just weird pop songs and very strange hooks. The, voice, the singing is more like an instrument, really, than anything else. The lyrics don't seem to really matter. It's just another sound. There's a lot of space in this music, which, which I like. And I think it's a great record, a really great record. Well done, Mark Hollis and the boys.
1: And it, it um, followed up from there biggest success didn't it i mean look i i this i had no knowledge of this album i had only vague knowledge of talk talk they weren't really my kind of thing somebody once gave me a a, a copy of the color of spring i think i have to say that it, it 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 hit the turntable a couple of times and then it hit the charity shop
0: this, this album feels like it came a little bit out of nowhere i think
1: you think this one's better
0: definitely i really like it are you not so sure
1: it's it, it is it is not quite my bag. Um, I think I can. Let me say this. I think I'm gonna. To to, I'm gonna to have to edit out a lot of these pauses.
0: <laughs> no, no, it adds to the tension, <laughs> the tense exchange. I can see in retrospect, like a Jeremy why... Paxman interview. <laughs> I'm going to ask you again and again, do you like this album? <laughs>
1: I don't really. I can see why no, you no. might, but I, I. <laughs> There was a kind of strain of some slightly quirky British pop during that period that fundamentally got right on my tits. And I think talk talk probably live in that neighborhood for me. People used to get called art rockers. The concept of art rock has always really irritated me. You know, just be one or the other. (laughs) And the sense that by calling yourself an art rocker, that somehow you've got a little bit of extra oomph, and you can look down slightly on people who aren't.
0: You're a head start in people taking you seriously. It's it's almost cheating.
1: Yeah, and I I I don't I feel a little bit yeah. bad about condemning them in that way. But I, yes, it's it's not hugely my my thing.
0: It was it wasn't many people's thing. I think that was, of course, part of the problem.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I can see, and again, it seems, this seems to me to be the common thread. I can see that they were trying to do something else and trying to do something different.
0: Well, even better than that, they were trying to change the whole sound of pop music forever.
1: And that's that's a great
0: place to start.
1: That's exactly why they always got on my tits. (laughs) Because I suspect, I suspect I read interviews in Melody Maker in which they said stuff like that. And I was like, and turned the page.
0: Basically, Mark Hollis, the producer, they holed up in some studio in London for months on end. And all their families, their wives had to threaten them with divorce to get them to come out and actually talk to them. And they really genuinely believe they had changed the whole history of Western music. So, (laughs) you know, obviously a flop. Thank you, Toby. Um, (laughs) Toby, Sorry not
1: to be more positive about that.
0: Enough talk talk. Uh, you, 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 You do better, Toby. You tell me the second best quality flop of all time in your opinion.
1: so my second best quality flop is essentially the most legendary quality flop in the rock and roll canon wow. uh, and the most legendary because at the time it not only took uh far too long but it cost more to produce than any other album had up to that time my second quality flop is tusk by fleetwood mac Fleetwood Mac, let's be honest, a little bit of a laughing stock most of the time. Certainly <laughs> when we look at them through the prism of history. A decent British blues band, their lead singer and guitarist, lead light, lead everything, goes mad, runs off to a monastery, and grows his hair and his fingernails. They struggle through the next five years with a number of albums that. Nobody has ever listened to
0: any of these albums. I cannot comprehend their trajectory. Exactly. They were just sort of blokes in jeans with long hair. And suddenly they're in L.A. being superstars. It's like, how did how did you do that? It's like Mr. Ben right. yeah, just he... became a different band. They
1: were dying on their feet. John McVie, basically an alcoholic. Mick Fleetwood, the 15th best drummer ever to play in John Mayall's <laughs> Blues Breakers. And... <laughs> Christine McVee, you know the kind of singer who would be fine on an open mic night at the pub around the corner what were they going to do with their lives and then so they're sort of dragging themselves through another recording session in LA with half a band because the latest person to sing and play the guitar realized that they would be better off pursuing a second <laughs> career as a cab driver <laughs> In one of those extraordinary rock quirks of fate, they bump into these two people, Lindsay Buckingham and Stevie Nicks, who are both utter geniuses. And it just so happens that Mick Fleetwood has enough brain cells left in his brain to say, why don't you join our band? In other words, why don't you please save our lives and give John enough money that he can drink himself into an early grave? Which, interestingly, he never did because he's still alive. So they then do Fleetwood Mac and Rumours and they've got more money than you can imagine. And they then concentrate on putting as much as possible of that money up their noses for a couple of years. But for Lindsay Buckingham, all that is not enough. And what particularly got his goat was that, of course... Fleetwood Mac, even even those two albums, they became a sort of self-parody as soon as they hit the shelves. A little bit like, I suppose, something like Hotel California by the Eagles. In some sense, it's so good and so perfect that for a vast number of people, it's just going to be the most irritating thing you have ever heard. So Lindsay's not having any of that. He wants to be relevant. He wants to be a a relevant... I don't think he wants to be the great artist, but he wants to be a relevant artist, and he wants to be relevant to the people he wants to be relevant to. And apparently, he became a little bit obsessed with David Byrne and the Talking Heads.
0: Pinnacle of art rock.
1: Exactly. We're back into the art rock genre. My understanding of what he basically did was lock all the rest of the band in a cupboard and go away and produce this album. Double album. Again, I mean, obviously, it shifted you know, millions, because at that point, I think if Fleetwood Mac had done a dump on a turntable, everybody would have bought it. But it was the most expensive album ever produced, and it was panned by the music press. It was panned by the fans, even though they bought it.
0: It's a very expensive album, and today's money, I think it was $50 to buy the album or something. Extraordinary.
1: Yeah, well, but great art don't come cheap.
0: (laughs) Or does relevant art. i have never heard all of rumors in my life um i've heard probably every song one time or another but i've never sat God, down i wish
1: i could say the same
0: <laughs> and but I, I felt privileged actually because i was just approached this album without really knowing what fleetwood maca supposed to sound like i so thought this is a great rock album i could hear the ones where lindsey buckingham has um shaved his head and banged t- toilet toilet rolls or something i, I don't know he got those ones stand out
1: he apparently used to um he, he would want to try singing in different ways so he would he would sing a whole song lying down face down on the floor with the microphone close to him to see if he liked the way it sounded better
0: <laughs> it banging tissue boxes or something together right? yeah yeah
1: there was oh, i, was I think no i think it was the demos when he sent them to mick fleetwood he he'd done the drum track by 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 banging a tissue box. What was slightly ironic about that is that when you listen to Mick Fleet with Pay the Drums, most of the time it does sound like he's hitting a tissue box. (laughs) So the other interesting thing about uh, Tusk, which I think will particularly appeal to you, is that do you know who Christine McVie was going out with at the
0: time? I believe that she was going out with Dennis Wilson. She was
1: engaged to Dennis Wilson.
0: Jesus, (laughs) that's a bad move.
1: And the... The, the interesting fact, which I think I, sh- I will hope will will inspire you to go back and listen to Tusk all over again, is that the legend is that Lindsay Buckingham persuaded Dennis Wilson to release to him the original tapes of smile Ooh. which he used as inspiration for Tusk
0: very interesting because th- that does that fits that fits with some of the sounds on it
1: there's a few there's three or four of the christine the Pub singer songs, which you can just 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 ignore them because you know there is, with the greatest respect to her, there's that wonderful quote from Spinal Tap. Rob Reiner is doing the reviews of their albums. He's reading the albums, um, and he says the artistic growth of this band cannot even be charted. And with the greatest respect (laughs) to Christine McVie, that is what her songs are. A song that she writes today could be a song she wrote 40 years ago. It's exactly the same song. So yes, there's those songs. You know what they're gonna sound like and they're there and they're not surprising. Stevie Nicks, I'm absolutely certain, saved up all of her good stuff because a year after this was produced, she brought out her first solo album, Bella Uh Donna, which is, I mean, just an absolute masterpiece. And her songs on this are a bit meh, but that's not what's interesting in the album either. It's all of the Lindsay Buckingham stuff that's so extraordinary. And there's this wild jangling guitars and these weird noises. He's like, I'm going to tear the entire edifice down and do what, the hell i want
0: yeah and all the mixes are wrong and the drums are too loud or too quiet it's just
1: my favorite is 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 not that funny which comes about halfway through it does sound a bit like the talking heads and i think what's really interesting is that i suspect that the rest of them by this point certainly mick and john that they had shackled their wagon behind the twin horses of lindsey and stevie right and so they didn't really have a choice but to go with this because if it wasn't this, what was it going to be for Fleetwood Mac? They had nothing to offer. They don't write oh. music. They don't do anything artistically. They just they just play the rhythm section. They had absolutely nothing themselves to offer to this band. Christie it's a bit a sort
0: of, of definition of, of a virus, isn't it? The, say the virus actually isn't alive. It's just got a sort of structure.
1: Yes, exactly. They're, they're like the two luckiest men in show business, really. Um <laughs> So Tusk is, is is legendary for that reason, but it, it it was it's a famous flop, but it is absolute quality. It's good,
0: it's good. I, I really enjoyed it, and I, I thank you. I'm go, I'm going to keep dipping in and out of it. I don't think I'm going to listen to the whole thing in one go, unless I'm locked myself in a cupboard. Um,
1: <laughs> You'll probably find Mick Fleetwood and John V in there with you. <laughs> <laughs> so, what is your number two quality flop?
0: My well, number two is uh, by Dexy's Midnight Runners, and it's called "Don't Stand Me Down." And this is an album that was their, I think their third album. I was a bit of a, a Dexys fan at one point and I, I got the first two albums and I, I very much liked them. And I didn't buy this one. I, I think I might've read a bad review and at that age, that was enough for me. I'm, I'm done, I'm not going near that. And I never sort of revisited, I kind of lost interest in Dexys bid at runners, but for the purpose of this, this podcast, I, I started to delve around and I'd read about it. And um, there it was. And I looked into it, it was, it was a flop. Definitely after the expectations raised by two rae it uh, didn't chart in the u s the band didn't record another album essentially broke up afterwards, so that that's, that that fits definitely um, the the singer stole the tapes at one point, something to do with an unpaid bill, and he he tried to do a getaway in New York from the studios with tapes. Jumped into his chauffeur driven limo, but the uh, chauffeur was having a coffee break, <laughs> so the, the limo didn't drive away. So Kevin Rowland was kind of dragged out by a studio executive and had to give the tapes back. Then the uh, label offices caught fire, and for a week they couldn't go in. And he didn't know if the tapes had been destroyed. Two years of work. I mean, it's a it's a proper quality flop story. Absolute carnage. And then it comes out and people are like, what on earth is this?
1: Couldn't really understand why they did. Because as somebody who was never a massive Dexys Midnight Runners fan, I mean, my, my association with them was, you know, prancing about to come on Eileen at the end of yeah, you know, okay. bad college discos. In the nicest way possible, this didn't sound any worse than any of the others.
0: It's got those interminable conversations with Kevin Rowland and one of the bands, which no, is that's clearly a mistake. So it's a little bit self-indulgent. Um, it's it's got a twelve-minute song, which um, of course I thought Toby, you might might appreciate, um, which but maybe others didn't. But uh, I, I kind of like the story probably more than the music. You know, it's, it's to me it's a good disaster album, but I also think it's it's probably a lot better than people thought it was at the time
1: yeah and most importantly for me uh one of those things has exactly the same cause as werewolves of london by warren zevon and as i said i couldn't on the face of it i couldn't see why it had um flopped.
0: yes no i think that's right i think that it's it's that thing of time a bit as well isn't it you've got to you've got to get a move on um i think it took them two years to come out i think that Apparently eight months into the recording, they'd only got two songs down, which is is great. Um, I think Kevin Rowland was a, a great man for like 120 takes and all that kind of thing. I'm and beginning to a see bit a bit.
1: theme. Yeah, if you if if you're trying too hard, you probably should stop trying.
0: So yes, yeah, I with you. I think they didn't have a single. I think that was the other thing. There wasn't so an obvious single apart from Werewolves of London, which of course had already been released <laughs> by somebody else. Toby, it's it's time, it's time to hear the greatest greatest quality flop of all time. In your opinion.
1: My number one quality flop is, of course, Let It Be
0: by the Beatles. Explain yourself, man.
1: It's so difficult to know where to
0: start. Well, <laughs> how, how, I you think, think how you say it's flop, and how can you say it's quality? Exactly. The <laughs> the question is,
1: how can one possibly say this has quality? This is the album that John Lennon famously said was the shittiest shit he'd ever heard. <laughs> Um, it's difficult to know where to start with Let It Be, isn't it? Everything about it is kind of so tragic. It,
0: it's um, it makes me so tense. To it? It's like watching your parents yeah. have an argument. It's just awful. So yeah. the tension. Like, oh.
1: It is. So, so in the very, very briefest way, as I'm sure everyone knows, there were lots of sessions, went very badly, produced um, the pile of shittiest shit and then this thing happens that i i mean i, st- I you know I, I still don't understand is that they say let's take a break from these sessions and go and do something else and in what seems like about 5 minutes flat they produce abbey road with some of the greatest songs ever written how does that happen i don't understand how that happens the only i mean i suppose you know is the explanation well that just happened to be the week that yoko was out of town it can't be that simple but I do not understand it. I don't understand. You can spend two years coming up with this pile of shitty shit. And you can spend five minutes coming up with Come Together. Here comes the sun. And then, having essentially split up, they decide to release Let It Be. I think mainly if they've got the movie to do. And it just had to get done. And then, I mean, we won't go into vast detail about all the various versions and whatever but what we ended up with was this kind of absolute dog's dinner mainly produced by phil Spector, and it lives up to the hype of being the shittiest shit ever so why is this a quality <laughs> flop sure. it's a quality flop because of one thing only because let it be is redeemed in my view And i know this is this is a, a high horse you've heard me get on many times but <laughs> the listening public haven't Let It Be is redeemed by something called Let It Be Naked. And very briefly, what happened is that um, Macca, who always hated this, he hated the Phil Spector versions. He hated The Long and Winding Road, which he's right about. He's not quite right about how much he should hate The Long and Winding Road. He hates the mix of it that Phil Spector did. He authorized the release of the original tapes to these guys who remixed and regenerated the entire album. They took off the horrendous two little bits that are Dig it and Maggie Mae. They put on Don't Let Me Down, which was the B-side of Get Back, and a good tune. And they stripped out all of the nonsense. So Long Winding Road is just Paul and a piano. Interestingly, and I didn't realise this till I was doing my revision for this, I didn't realise that Phil Spector had dropped across the universe by a semitone. Did you know that? I did not know that. I got to the point where I was listening to the two versions <laughs> simultaneously. <laughs> And I was listening to it in D-flat on Let It Be and D-natural on uh, Let It Be Naked. And Let It Be Naked
0: is great. And it was like having a new new Beatles album, especially the, the Long and winding road that you mentioned, just to hear it the way it should have been. I so enjoyed that. Are you claiming, though, that the original Let It Be is quality? I mean, I'm, yes, you... I am.
1: But what I'm saying is it is the very definition of the, the, the ruby in the dust. The, the dust was so thick that actually you've got to go beyond the original album to the original tapes, <laughs> and you've got to give them to somebody and let them do the songs that as they should have been done, and then you get the ruby.
0: Because I, I listen to it again, feeling tense. And I concluded that I, the songs I liked on it were "I'm in Mine." And, you know, I'm a huge Beatles fan, so yeah. this is the one album I find really different. I like "I'm in Mine," but I actually really like um, D- "Dig It" and "and Maggie May" and maybe "Ponder." You know, McCartney came out the same day as "Let It Be," his Paul's solo album, and actually that sounds like an entire album of "Dig It." I just found myself thinking I enjoyed those bits. I don't like. I know you like "I Dig a Pony," but I just. I just can't be having it with that song. I like Big and Pony.
1: T- t- I like oh. I like I've Got a Feeling.
0: Yeah. That's a fantastic song. Fantastic song. It is it's a Beatles album. How bad can it be? Well, I suppose it here is the answer. <laughs> it's how bad it, <laughs> it's almost like deliberately trying to ruin a Beatles album, just just see does it is it still listenable? Which which it is, you know, it is. But it's it's a sad album as well, isn't it? You listen to it and you're like, oh dear. It's tragic. Oh, dear.
1: It's completely tragic. I mean, I'm not surprised that the sleeve is black, you know. Yeah. And, uh, this is the album that really is none more black. Oh, yeah. Second <laughs> spinal tap quote of the day. Dig is, is, is it apparently that... um credited to Lennon McCartney, Harrison and Starr.
0: The is... only one. Oh, there's another one. Flying, the instrumental. Uh, the, the only Beatles instrumental is credited all yeah. four as well.
1: Right.
0: I know the rattles in their spoof, they called it Let It Rot, didn't they? <laughs> And it should have been so good, the rooftop concert. It's-
1: and it's such a shame that they dismissed the first cover concept. So, you know, the first cover concept, when it yeah, was going to be yeah, called yeah. Get Back, was the copy of them looking down over the banister in the the same way as Please, Please Me. Oh,
0: very interesting choice, though, and you got me to listen to it again. I don't know if I'm grateful or not for that, but <laughs> I did listen to it again. <laughs> Which was good. And I appreciated Dig It, which I'd always hated. Is there more to say or should we just let it be?
1: I think, I think we need to let Let It Be Be at that point
0: because otherwise we'll be here all night. We'll get back to our theme of quality flops. Very and here good. it is, Toby. The number one quality flop of all time is um, an album by Gene Clark of The Birds and it's called No Other. Why is it a flop? Well, straight away, it charted at 144 in the US charts, which is, is terrible. He was a very successful guy in some ways. He'd obviously been with the Birds. His songs were well known. He himself had never quite taken off in his solo career, but he'd been chugging along nicely, the occasional Birds reunion and stuff. So he was high th- good things were expected from him. The album cost a fortune, about half a million dollars pounds in today's money. David Geffen, who was the record label Boss, when he received the uh, album for the listening, he said, why is there only eight songs? Threw it in the bin and walked out. (laughs) Even listening to it. It totally was the end of Gene Clark's career. Um, I'd never really recorded formally again he did bits of bobs but never really made another album why do i like it Um, i like of course the ludicrous story and the excess around it It, the the lyrics came out of lengthy conversations he had with dennis hopper and david carradine of kung fu fame which i think again you think you need to think carefully before you proceed with this project if that's how you started it Um, but he obviously thought it was the right way to go i get the
1: impression uh, that he thought it was brilliant.
0: It just was gutted. He really put everything into it and he could not understand why people did not want eight minutes of him relaying his conversations with Dennis Hopper and David Carradine over complex, multi-layered musical backdrops. But, you know. Uh,
1: I looked up the, 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 the list of people who played on this album and it's basically a who's who of anybody who was playing an instrument in and around California in the mid-70s there are members of there are members of the birds there are members of the Allman brothers uh, there are members of the eagles there are people who played with crosby stills and nash there is the ubiquitous joe lala who name that we will go back come back to again and again joe lala was the go-to percussionist in the west coast of america for a decade and he's just everywhere I really like it. You listen to it now and the songs are really good. The title track is really, really good. Uh, the first song, Life's Greatest Fool," is very good. And it is not immediately clear why it flopped. And the only thing I thought is that it's 1974 and I just wonder whether it had been two years earlier or two years later it might have been a hit because if it had been two years earlier, it would have been part of that kind of first wave of you know laurel county singer songwriters everybody was just hoovering that stuff up and there were people who released you know well-regarded and successful albums in that period that are unlistenable now um because there was such an appetite for it you know you could basically break wind And if you looked kind of depressed and had long hair and had a guitar and you said that this was your own wind you were breaking, they'd signed you to an album, you know. And a few years later, of course, then when when the Eagles had steamrolled this stuff and so it was, you know, it wasn't that it was artistically credible, it was commercially credible. He might have just found the sales numbers. But I wonder whether whether he fell through in the middle of that period where actually everybody was a bit fed up with it. Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young in 1974 did their famously bad stadium tour where they hated each other so much that it had to be four limousines from uh, venue to venue because they wouldn't even sit in the same car. And I think it might have been at that point, everyone actually, we're a bit fed up with all these navel-gazing, frankly, millionaire dope heads peddling this stuff to us. And I think it's a shame because it is really, really quality
0: there is a quote from him which might help us understand why it was a flop as well it says we were trying to make a real piece of art oh dear so that 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 could have been the problem that could have been the problem no matter how it sounds just if you're starting from there but i'm glad you enjoyed it i i I I thought i thought you would you've
1: been you've been peddling this to me for decades this wasn't the first (laughs) time (laughs) <laughs> I you
0: didn't like it you didn't like it last time i thought i'd try it again yeah try it subtly, subtly this time, it again. And, and
1: this time it really it really succeeded
0: it's a great record and i think it's the number one quality flop of all time but i, I appreciate i may be alone in that opinion Toby, we've 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 done we've done the flops
1: what i've learned this week is there are a number of warning signs warning lights that should flash up uh, when people are when people have been successful, and one of the things about most of these albums is they come after success. If you're successful and you decide that your next thing is to produce a big artistic statement, that is warning light number one. Don't do it. Warning light number two is don't make it a double album. Warning light number three is don't take too long. Yes, It's, it's the combination of all of that. I think it's people feeling... Now I've got to do something epoch making. I've got to do something that will be in the annals of music for the rest of time.
0: Getting taken seriously. Isn't that a strange concept in a way? You know, you should always take your your work seriously. But but thinking that everyone else should take it seriously too. That's what I don't really understand. Um, And it it loses a bit of fun or something.
1: For me, the juxtaposition is with status quo. I don't know whether status quo have ever produced either a good album or a flop album all they've done is produce status quo albums and i, I suspect status quo have never tried to make a big artistic
0: statement they just it's carry on else, being status quo it's that great difference between taking yourself seriously and taking your work seriously so status quo i'm sure take their work very seriously yeah but they, they don't take themselves professionally at all yeah. yeah and and it's that moment when you start to think i want to be taken seriously And then you start changing what you do to to achieve that aim. You're you're in trouble.
1: You're in trouble. Your family's in trouble. Your band is in trouble. Your record company is in trouble.
0: And the irony is everyone will laugh at you and not take you seriously, ironically enough.
1: If you're very, very lucky, at some point decades on, you'll get something like you and me sitting around saying, actually, that's quite quality. (laughs)
0: It's quite good.
1: I I just hope wherever all these various people are, well, we know where some of them are, dead, um, but the ones who are still alive, I just hope that in some way they are warmed by the knowledge that we think their flops had quality.
0: There's only two things left. The first thing is you can tell people where to find us, Toby. You know where to find us on the interweb.
1: You can find us on uh, Facebook at Total Rankers Podcast. You should be able to also find us on Twitter at Total Rankers Podcast, and I believe also, Donal, on YouTube as well. Is that correct?
0: That is correct. We have a YouTube cha- page, channel. I'm not sure, but we have it. Um, thank you, Toby, for telling us where people can, can, can find us. And the last thing to do is talk about the next podcast, which mm. the theme is essentially people who've had runs of three albums, good albums, run of three, three in a row that are good quality. And Toby, you've got another way of describing that. Can you, can you lighten this?
1: The legend of the three-peat Right. And it's called the three peat because um nobody has ever won the Super Bowl three times in a row. The concept of the three peat in American sports is a big thing. And so what we're going to be looking at next week is the legend of the three peat.
0: Three great albums. Or three albums we like. Do they have to be have to be good or just do we have to just like them?
1: It's the same thing, isn't it? If I like it it's good. If I don't <laughs> like it, it's not good. My my entire <laughs> life is predicated on that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um that's great i'm looking forward to it it's going to be hard work because you've got to listen to not you've got to listen to three albums for each rank fantastic well look i can't wait speak again
1: thank you very much we'll speak next time